On the afternoon of 4th of July weekend in 1991, Douglas Wagg Jr. rode off on his bike in hopes of joining in on some of the festivities. But Doug never made it home, and the next time he was seen was as he lay across a stretch of railroad tracks under the dim headlamp beam of an oncoming train. In this season of Counterclock, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra is turning back the clock to dive into exactly how Doug died and how he ended up on the tracks so far from his home. But while Delia's investigation for this season of Counterclock started as a look into one man's suspicious death, what she uncovered is so much more. A string of crimes, a growing number of mysterious deaths, and cases so baffling that make this season of Counterclock the most intense investigation yet. Join the Crime Junkie fan club to binge all episodes of Counterclock Season 6 now, or listen to new episodes weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a mysterious room of long-forgotten moldy mascot memorabilia, often pitched by ad agencies, always rejected by NJM. Is it real? We may never know. But what is real is NJM's dedication to doing what's right for their customers. Astoundingly, they're proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. Learn more at NJM.com. I knew it would be emotionally difficult, but I just didn't have a choice. It was more emotionally, it had become more emotionally difficult to not do it. Sarah Perry quoted Aeneas Nin, and the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. The quote speaks to the repression that for years kept the story of Sarah's mother from reaching the page. Now, Sarah is the author of After the Eclipse, a memoir that documents her early life in Bridgeton, Maine with her beautiful red-haired mother, Crystal Perry, as well as the details and aftermath of her murder in 1994. From her own memories and through conversations with her mother's family, friends, and acquaintances, as well as evidence and case files, Sarah Perry got to know her mother's life through a new lens, and see clearly the issues working against the search for answers in Crystal Perry's case. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is the story of Crystal Perry, told by her daughter, Sarah Perry, on Dark Down East. Sarah Perry spent much of her childhood in Bridgeton, Maine, the daughter of a single mother, Crystal Perry. They were close, like best friends. Sarah's book narrates much of that life together through the eyes of a daughter who adored her mother. I, we had such a good relationship when I was little, and 
she died kind of as I was starting to become a preteen and push her away a little and try to individuate. So a real risk of this book was having this perspective on her that was too rosy-eyed to like perfect, perfect mom. Oh, she's so beautiful. She's so this, she's so that. But you know, the beautiful thing and several other things that I had held dear about her were, I have evidence now <laughs> from other people. Like it's an indisputable fact. So something that I was looking for was, I guess even an idea of was, is my idea of who she was accurate? Or, or was it so colored by me being a child, it, even though I was a precocious child and we were close and et cetera, et cetera. She was such a good mom and she was compared to some other friends' parents, quite strict actually, very, or let's say regular with bedtimes and dinner times and rules and et cetera. Like I was a pretty easy kid, I think, cause I was such a nerd, um, but I, I thought of her as being so upstanding in that way and the house was always so clean and she was such a budgeter and all of these things. And I got to know that is all true, but I also got to know like some more of her fun side and that when she was in her group of friends, like she was often the person telling a joke or getting people up to dance or she had this kind of light to her that she shared with all kinds of people. Like even people who were maybe coworkers, but not necessarily friends. Like she was known to be, nobody's perfect, not to everybody I'm sure, but just really kind and respectful to people. And I think that's something that I, I always seek to emulate, kind of respecting people as they are and letting them, letting them be who they are. As an adult looking back on her childhood, Sarah has a new appreciation and respect for how her mother parented. I have things that I look back on and I think, and, and now I'm impressed, like from my perspective now, like I remember she had a coworker whose name was Dickie, who I, I guess I overheard a conversation or something about him dating men. And I must've been 10 or 11. So it's 92 or 93 in this small town, mom, didn't have the benefit of higher education, hadn't really lived anywhere else with the exception of a year or two. And I remember, I don't remember what my question was, but I was kind of confused by that. Like, what, is, what does that mean? He's, or like, I heard he was gay and I was like, what does that mean? And she was just very simple about it. She said, that means that he loves men like you would expect other people to love women and it's not a big deal. And now we think about that and I'm like, where did that come from? And, and like, I feel really fortunate that I was raised by somebody whose response was that before, definitely before the national conversation about queerness and, and gay rights, et cetera, was as nearly as sophisticated as it would come to be. So that's a moment I think about a lot. Sarah didn't give her mother much need for discipline, but the rare occasion was met with a level and loving approach. One day in sixth grade, my friend and I got caught writing nasty notes about our teacher. We were just being brats. We were just like pushing against authority, writing stupid notes. 
and we got busted, which was very funny because she and I were like such goody two shoes and we got sent to the principal's office and it felt like the end of the world to us because it was the first time for both of us. And they photocopied the note and they made us take it home. And our, our parents had to sign the photocopy of the note to prove that they had seen this thing and seen what brats we had been. And I gave it to my mother and I was just like trembling and crying as disappointing her was the worst thing ever. And she took a look at it and she just like took a deep breath and she could see like I had already tortured myself so much about it. She just said, don't get caught next time. That, that felt really instructive. Like, okay, you've already learned your lesson. And I think that was an important peek into her personality and something that I think about when I find myself getting too rigid about, about rules and expectations and how things should be. Sarah Perry is a published author, an award-winning writer, an educator in creative writing. She holds her MFA in nonfiction from Columbia. The list continues. She is, without challenge, a writer. Even as a kid, she wrote and was recognized for her skill. However, losing her mother and the circumstances of that loss changed her relationship with writing. Imagination became a really dangerous place. To go to any sort of imaginative space was to risk kind of opening the door to thinking really specifically about the night that mom was killed or being in a risky psychological space because any sort of space of creativity is is destabilizing, even if beautifully so. I became really invested in like being super successful in school and checking off all the boxes and getting the straight A's and, and doing like kind of marching forward in this, in a way that would build as much stability for myself as possible. So taking creative risks really didn't fit into that for a long time. The dream of being a writer and feeling legitimized in that title came when Sarah pursued grad school at Columbia University. That's also when she could no longer repress the story that called to her. It was time to write about her mother. So, but I had this background, like, passion in my head, this dream of being a writer. So sometimes I would, like, in my mid-20s, I would sit down and feel compelled to spit something out on the page. And it was always about mom. I could never like get any traction on anything else. Like all the best stuff was always writing about my childhood or, or having that energy of thinking back on something and wanting to figure it out. That was the work that was most urgent and, and really even had the best, best sentences and was the most cinematic, et cetera, as opposed to fiction, which, which I just didn't call to me as much. So I had this burning urge to write this book and it just wasn't happening. I felt like the project of creative writing was so strongly associated with mom being killed because I had felt such hope about the future. And I was like, you know, I was 12, but I was trying to write a novel at the time and then just got completely cut off. So I think I would sit down at my desk and I would actually have like a trauma reaction. Like I physically couldn't handle doing it. But especially after the trial happened, I, I just had this story really calling to me. So as I said, I put myself in grad school jail to do it. I thought, well, I'll go to grad school and then I'll have structure and support and I will have to do it because I will have teachers telling me to. 
Um, so I start. I started in earnest when I went to Columbia when I was 28. So that was uh, 2010. 2010, three years after the conviction that put Crystal Perry's killer in prison for life, and 16 years since the night her mother was murdered. In the early morning hours of May 11, 1994, a man entered the home of Crystal and Sarah Perry, either under the guise of needing help or some other story. 12-year-old Sarah was asleep in bed when the man, later identified as Michael Hutchinson, killed her mother. Sarah walked through the details of that night in After the Eclipse, but including that scene in the book wasn't a given. It was really a struggle for me as I was working on this book. I had a lot of breakdowns about the ethics of even doing it because I benefit from this increased visibility of true crime stories and the timing of my book too was like that was a really big groundswell of like more nuanced true crime stories unbeknownst to me like that wasn't planned but that's that's how it hit and I just really struggled with this like I'm going to professionally and personally and sort of financially benefit from putting a true crime story out there like how do I deal with that and everybody around me would assure me like but you're you like you get to do it so I thought like if I'm gonna do it how can I do it responsibly so I I thought what are wrong with the stories that I think are are icky and and unethical and one of the number one things is sensationalism. Like, are you making the violence sexy? Like, are you appealing to people's baser instincts and in how you represent things? So for a long time, I thought I might not even include the night of the murder at all in the book. I think ultimately it was important to me to represent really what had happened so we knew exactly what we were talking about and exactly what this person had done and what me, your narrator in the book, had really been through. But I tried to do it with as like cool, dispassionate language as I could. So I was always trying to find a craft response to any problem of stereotypical true crime. In many of the cases I cover, for the families I've worked with, they have not had the opportunity, the access to the platform, or the skills to write or otherwise share the story of their loved one in its entirety in the way they want it to be shared. Even when local news coverage gives their loved one's case some airtime, it's 90 seconds, maybe two minutes if they're lucky. And very rarely is there any heart or humanity below the headline. That's why I created Dark Down East, to lend a platform so their voices and their stories are heard, their loved ones remembered. I think that's also part of why I was anxious and nervous when speaking to Sarah, because she doesn't need me. She's already chosen her words and the manner of narrating her memories of that event, of who her mother was and is to her. She walked through the years of repressing her story and navigating her anger and the personal and ethical battles before finally getting it on paper in such a meaningful and poignant way. Because she's already told her story in her book, not to mention police interviews and court testimony, as well as other reasons, such as there being no necessity to relive that trauma for a podcast. Sarah will not be describing the night of her mother's death in any great detail here. Please read after the eclipse. 
So mom was uh, attacked by someone in the night and I was in the house and I heard it, but I didn't see the person. You know, the investigation began began with me and interviewing me and I, I never had that information for the police, although there were theories that I had it and that I had repressed memory and hadn't remembered, which is, which is interesting historically because it was the mid nineties and it was really the idea of repressed memory Recovering or repressed memory was very hot then, culturally. And I, I always wanted to dig into more how much that might have been an influence. But at some point it was determined I did not have the answers. But, you know, I have to hand it to the Maine State Police for keeping the, the case open and active. Somebody was always actively working on it. We're finally emerging from winter here in Maine, and I think it's now safe to pack away my parka and sweaters and dig out my shorts and sundresses. If you've been wanting to update your wardrobe for this next season and beyond without spending a fortune, Quince is for you. Quince has timeless pieces like premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Before I buy anything, like clothing, accessories, stuff for my home or my daughter, I check Quince first because they always have identical items for so much less. I recently bought a neoprene carry-on bag from Quince that looks designer, but is a fraction of the designer version's price tag. I also just added to my cart a silk skirt and a linen top that I'm going to be living in with some light wash denim this summer. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash downeast for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash downeast to get free shipping and 365-day returns. q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash downeast. Do you know someone struggling to figure out their mental health benefits? The Mental Health Insurance Assistance Office is here to help. Find us at insurance.ohio.gov slash G-E-T-M-H-I-A or call us at 855-438-6442. Don't wait. The Mental Health Insurance Assistance Office can help you figure out what mental health insurance benefits may be in their plan. Call us today at 855-438-6442. A piece of the investigation that I found to be among the most shocking was that for a time, Sarah was investigated as a suspect to some extent. The rationale behind it being that she was jealous of her mother or some other wild possibility considered by detectives trying to make sense of the scene and the circumstances. But what wasn't that shocking, and unfortunately so, was the other angle which really exposed several core issues that commonly punctuate homicide investigations, especially when the victim is a woman. Victim blaming. Because of Crystal Perry's dating and relationship history, there was an assumption that whoever did this must have known her and at one point even loved her. Investigators interviewed her fiancé at the time, Dennis Lorraine, as well as other men who knew or knew of Crystal. You've likely heard the saying, the husband did it, and that's the meme version of an investigative tactic that looks at those closest to the victim first. People will still ask me that question socially. 
you know, if they become aware of the fact that my mother was killed by a man, especially after a sexual assault. Oh, was it her boyfriend? Oh, was someone once said to me, oh, it must have been your father. Oh, it must have been your father. <laughs> this is a person who did not know me at all. Didn't know if my parents were married or not. Like, people are so desperate. The thing that gets me is that people are so desperate for a story that makes sense to them. And additionally, the story that makes sense to them is a man who was supposed to love her is the one who killed her. Like, that's, that's, that's a problem. Like, that's the thing that's going to make you feel better about this. But it's understandable because people want to assure themselves it won't happen to them. And they look at their own relationships and they think, and they look at all the relationships of, of all the people in their lives and they think, okay, everybody's safe here because nobody we know is going to do that. Well, everybody who does that is somebody somebody knew, right? As part of her research for After the Eclipse, Sarah gained access to the case files and boxes of evidence and even field notes of the original detectives and other authorities on the case. It was apparent that had the case been handled differently, maybe Sarah's wait for answers wouldn't have been so long. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but it's also easy to see things that could have been done better, like case, ways that this case conceivably could have been solved a lot earlier. A lot earlier. Maybe even the same week. If the statement of Crystal's best friend Linda was considered worthy of follow-up by the detective at the time, Dick Pickett. At some point, very soon, days after the murder, Linda, mom's best friend, had reason to feel creepy and suspicious of a pickup truck that was parked across the street from her. And she was dismissed as a hysterical woman. It wasn't followed up. And as far as I can determine, that was the killer's truck. Now, why, what set her antenna off? Who knows, but like, why not check it out? <laughs> like he consulted a psychic, he spent his time doing that. Like, why not walk yourself across the street and ask some questions? Because the killer had injured his hand and that was something that they had looked for because his blood was found at the scene too. So they were looking for, they were looking at anybody with an injured hand during that time. And if they had only laid eyes on him, he would have been such a suspect. And, and all it took was like not writing off an emotional woman. I learned a lot from Sarah through our conversation and through reading her book. I really appreciate the ways she challenged me to continue digging deeper into what's really operating behind many cases and to understand the bigger why and the systemic issues that inform and motivate killers, the same ones that have the potential to make some investigators blind to answers. Especially when I was when I was writing the book, it was really important to me to include instances of everyday misogyny that the interviews that the police, for example, the interviews that the police conducted with other men in town provided plenty of material about. <laughs> and that our everyday dismissal of women's perspectives and control over their own bodies informs the motivations of someone who's going to decide that they are sexually entitled to someone 
and that when she says no, they can end her life. Like, these are not unrelated issues. Like, a police officer completely disregarding the, the testimony of mom's best friend because he thinks that's that's a hysterical woman is, is not an unrelated issue. These things exist on a spectrum, of course, but like just that we have an epidemic of people thinking that they can lay hands on somebody else and take away their life or take away their autonomy. 13 years after Crystal Perry was killed, DNA disproved the theory that it was someone she dated or with whom she had a known ongoing romantic history. The husband did it theory did not fit. As far as the investigation revealed, her murder was random. Michael Hutchinson picked Crystal Perry for motivations we can only assume and took her life. Everybody wants to say the killer is this terrible monster. He's an aberration. It's very tempting. It's very tempting to just think this person is a monster. Of course, like I have to psychologically deal with the fact that this is a living, breathing person on the earth still. Like this is a person who went on and had a life. This person lived, you know, several houses down from mom's best friend for years. She met him, she met him at parties. Like I have friends who met him growing up who stayed in Bridgeton. Like this is a person who worked and went to the grocery store and existed. This is not just some, some comic book character of evil and like what environmental factors made this person like what taught this person that he could do this then state police lieutenant walter gribb had crystal perry's case in 2006 when the suspect was identified through dna evidence he reviewed everything that had been done before, re-DNA tested a dozen or two people in town, really dug in. But what I discovered was that, well, my experience of it being solved was I was in my mid-20s and I was working a desk job down south. And I had, at that point, I had had to put my desire for this person to be identified aside. Like I couldn't, like my healing could not be contingent on this answer. But so I had kind of given up. <laughs> and then one day in the middle of my work day, I got a phone call from Walt Gribbs, who had become the, at some point had been the lead investigator on the case, telling me that they had identified the killer. And what had happened was he had been involved in a violent altercation in Bridgeton in the early 2000s, having to do with a drug deal is the short version. So he had had to give up a DNA sample to CODIS. CODIS stands for Combined DNA Index System, and it refers to both a DNA database of collected samples from victims and from perpetrators, and the software in which those samples are documented and checked at participating federal, state, and local forensic laboratories. DNA evidence in Crystal Perry's case was in CODIS, but it would take several years for a match. The suspect hadn't been arrested yet, and his sample wasn't in the system. In Maine, current law requires that a DNA sample be collected from a defendant 
if they are convicted of a felony including murder, sexual assault, solicitation of a child, and other offenses, with some restrictions based on the date of the offense. That statute was revised to remove certain offenses previously requiring DNA samples upon conviction, including manslaughter, aggravated assault, kidnapping, criminal restraint, burglary, arson, criminal mischief, and others. It was the earlier statute that required Michael Hutchinson to give a DNA sample when he was arrested in 2003 on unrelated charges, kidnapping, and criminal threatening with a firearm. Sarah noted that at the time, Maine had a CODIS backlog of about two years. So a couple years passed before he came up as a match in our case. At that point, he had, he was actually back in jail because he had broken parole. So when he was identified, Walt could go to a prison and interview him. And a, a year later, we had the trial and he was convicted. So it was, you know, and I've asked Walt this before. I said, you know, after all of your like sleuthing and, and your, your real, real dedication to this case and, and all you had done really strategically for it to be kind of a random match <laughs> that solved it. Like, was that at all personally disappointing? And he's, he's just such an upstanding person. So dedicated to his job. He was like, no, I was just glad, just glad that it happened. So it's not a case of a heroic cop. Although you can probably hear my fondness for Walt. I could sense her fondness for Walt, both in our conversation and in After the Eclipse. That fondness seems mutual. A 2019 Sun Journal article by Andrew Rice covered an event where Sarah and Walt spoke together about Crystal Perry's case. Walt told Sarah he was struck by her strength, what she accomplished in her adult life. Walt told her, you're my hero. Michael Hutchinson's trial began in spring of 2007. The prosecution's case was supported by the DNA typing and match of the evidence at the scene and the sample given by Hutchinson, as well as largely circumstantial evidence. The defense, whose role in every criminal trial is to raise reasonable doubt, offered the theory that it was another man who committed the murder, that Hutchinson's biological evidence only proved he was there that night, but not that he killed anybody. The defense attorney tried to introduce letters that mom had written to a lover, imply that the sexual assault that happened the night mom died was consensual. Because it, because it resembled some kind of sex she had fantasized about on paper, which was completely inappropriate, immediately struck down by the judge. You know, but this was introduced kind of on the sly after that evidence had already been excluded <laughs> from the proceedings. And once it's out of your mouth, the jury can't unhear what you said. And it's, it was a transparent manipulation of sex negativity and slut-shaming and victim-blaming. And I wasn't, I was appalled but not surprised that that happened. Sarah testified at the trial, detailing her memory of that night once again. The defense tried to shake her on cross-examination ever so slightly as to not lose the jury's favor. But Sarah was solid. 
The jury deliberated for two hours before returning with a guilty verdict. On August 2, 2007, Michael Hutchinson was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Bravo. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Priscilla. This smells like houses in the Hampton Champagne toast down in Brazil. Smells like anything you think could happen, probably will. Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today. After the Eclipse is about Crystal Perry. It's about Sarah and her experiences before and after her mother was stolen from her. But it's also about the other individuals impacted by the loss of their sister, friend, partner, and co-worker. People who otherwise didn't have the opportunity to speak to what they had walked through. But I was really anxious about going to Maine and doing the research because me being in Maine is still complicated for me. And I was doing a lot of cold calling and I was transporting people back to, for a lot of them, what had been the scariest, worst period of their lives. And I knew that's what I was going to be doing. And I didn't, I didn't have experience interviewing. I didn't have experience going into the field and doing things like that. So it was all kind of intuitive. I had great support in, in professors and peers, but I would just rent a car from the city and drive up to Maine and just have my list and say, okay, here's 10 things you could do. You have to do five of these before you go home. <laughs> I had the advantage of being a person that people didn't want to say no to, too. And that kind of cut both ways because one motivation for writing the book, especially as I got more involved in it, was to represent stories of people who weren't me and represent, at least have it be really informed by the perspective of other people who had been deeply affected by this. I mean, very obviously my aunts, my mother's sisters, her best friend, Linda, and just people in town too, mom's coworkers, her people she had dated, people she was dating at the time. You know, I had been anointed as the, the prime griever and had had my moment in court to speak a fish on the record about how this had affected me, but a lot of people hadn't been given that kind of voice. And so it was really gratifying for me to be able to interview people and at least give them that container to talk about how this had affected them and to share stories that maybe nobody had ever asked them before because they weren't the kind of person that even a reporter would have approached at the time. One of those individuals was Dennis Lorraine. He was Crystal Perry's fiancé at the time of her death. Because of his proximity to Crystal, he was a suspect in her murder. You know, I haven't been in touch with Dennis in a few years, but his life was hugely altered, we can at least say, by this. 
the cops, not to mention townspeople, had their eye on him for a really long time. And he was interrogated and tracked and all of these things in the wake of his fiance being killed. And that's, and, and he was a problematic partner, let's say. He had explosions of anger during fights and things. So he doesn't get really any empathy from people. And I think it's, he's just like another tragedy in this story what happened to him. And he was so young. The older and older I get, the more I realize how young these people were. He was 19. Mom was 30. He was just a baby. Like, it's a miracle that he he could go on to... I shouldn't say that. I hate it when people say that about me. It's a miracle that he could go on to have a good life, you know? But I just think, like, there's just so much damage around a violent event like this that cannot be undone. What is your view of true crime entertainment? I think particularly for people who are true crime addicts, as people will often confess. You know, I don't really have a problem with attracting people who are into traditional true crime. I would like for people to come out on the other side of imbibing this story with a more critical lens on on why they're so interested in these stories. And to remember that when they are enjoying this entertainment, there are real people behind that. Real people who weren't disposable, who no matter what the situation was, you know, even in cases where the assailant is someone's husband or somebody's boyfriend who was always abusive and shouldn't she have known better, etc., whatever stupid story we tell, that nobody can do anything that makes them deserve getting killed or getting physically harmed. These stories frequently lack a real representation of the person who was lost and their family, of, of who this victim really was. We need, really need to interrogate why we're so attracted to these stories and so attracted to stories that follow this very cathartic shape of this beautiful woman is killed we're gonna go find the killer and some heroic cop often finds the killer and then the killer's in jail and then huzzah we can all celebrate how safe we are and we can experience this vicarious feeling of danger and then be assured that we're safe you know it also opens up questions about the criminal justice system and how problematic that is too this criminal justice system is not going to save us from misogyny and violence it's not disincentivizing people from attacking women and trans people and people of color. Like, that's not what's happening. And the, the stories that we focus on, too, don't even statistically represent the biggest victims of violent death in America are young Black men. Sarah asked me why I'm drawn to these stories, why I tell them, and I gave her... A very long three-part answer, and I was admittedly self-conscious as I rambled on. The short version is that telling these stories feels like the greatest, most meaningful alignment of my skills and what's needed. Then there's the fact that I'm an empath, and I want to understand loss and grieving to better empathize. But above all, I'm drawn to these stories because 
if I can honor one more person, help one more family, to let them know that they're heard and make them feel heard, then that's a worthy use of my skills that I've earned from a career filled with many forms of storytelling, all of which have yet to feel as important as this one. In writing after the eclipse, Sarah set out to know who her mother was, beyond the rosy frames of a young daughter. A funny thing that kept happening, especially with mom's friends, is I was also really motivated by getting to know mom, not just as her daughter and not just as a kid. You know, we were so close when I was growing up, like we might have been the mother and daughter now who were good friends because, you know, we were only 17 years apart. I have friends 17 years older and younger than me right now, you know, and we didn't get to have that. So I kind of got to borrow that from her friends. I got to know her as an adult from, from other people in her life, but people would regularly kind of, they would, they would start leaning into a story and then they would stop and they would apologize. And they'd say, I'm sorry, this is so hard for me because I just think of you as that little 12 year old girl. And I feel like I shouldn't tell you about this party. (laughs) I'm like, don't worry. It's fine. It's appropriate. I, have also been to parties. Like, it's okay to tell me these things. But they would have to, like, do this work to assure themselves because they were just suddenly having to age me 20 or so years. Do you know your parents, who they were before you, or who they are when you're not around? I'm not sure I've ever had or taken the opportunity to ask questions of my mom's friends and family to really know her like that. I reflected on this while reading the book. And I even told Sarah that I felt motivated to get to know my mother in this way while I still have her here. Maybe this will motivate and inspire you to do the same too. Sarah, what is your mother's legacy to you? What do you hope we all learn from the way that she lived? You know, there's a theory that the killer came to our door with some made-up story about his truck having broken down or something. Somebody tangentially involved in the case told me, maybe maybe that's what happened. Like, it was raining, he came to the door, he said, I need to use your phone. Mom, who was one of the few people we knew who was always really diligent in locking her doors at night in small town Maine in, in the 90s, opened her door to this person in need. And like, there's a part of me, like, when I live in the in the hypothesis that that's what happened, because we can't ever know exactly what happened there, it could be very tempting to be mad. <laughs> like, why did you do that? But I think that's how I want to live. Like, I want to be the person who's going to open my door to someone in need, even if there's this small sliver of a chance that I'm going to be harmed. Like, we can't just keep our doors closed to people in need. Crystal Perry's case is solved, but there is still action to take after hearing her story. I asked Sarah for the causes that are important to her that we can support right now. Consider making a donation to RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. They run the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Also, please consider supporting and donating to Women for Afghan Women, a grassroots civil society organization dedicated to protecting and promoting the rights of disenfranchised Afghan women and girls in Afghanistan and New York. 
I will be making a donation to the main coalition to end domestic violence. All of these organizations are linked in the show notes at darkdowneast.com. Thank you for listening to Dark Down East. Source material for this case and others is listed at darkdowneast.com. Pick up a copy of After the Eclipse by Sarah Perry at your local bookstore or by shopping on bookshop.org. Every purchase supports local booksellers. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing your stories and memories with me. I've learned a lot. I still have more to learn. Follow Dark Down East on Apple Podcasts and be sure to turn on automatic downloads in the top right corner of the app. And if you listen on Spotify or any other app, same thing. Just hitting follow is the easiest way to support this show and the cases I cover. For photos and more information on this case and others, visit darkdowneast.com and follow along on Facebook and Instagram at darkdowneast. Thank you for supporting this show and allowing me to do what I do. I'm honored to use this platform for the families and friends who have lost their loved ones and for those who are still searching for answers in cold missing persons and murder cases. I'm not about to let those names or their stories get lost with time. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is Dark Down East.